Matthew 26 this morning. We're going to be looking at the first 26 verses. So we've come as, as far as uh, the, the, the final section, really, of, of the Gospel of Matthew. We are in the final week of Jesus' life. We are in what we uh, frequently call Passion Week. Jesus has just finished his, his Olivet Discourse, right, in chapters uh, 24 and 25, and, and uh, we're, we're moving into the, the last phases of, of Jesus' life. And so uh, we're going to be picking up our study in Matthew 26. If you have your Bibles, uh, join with me in verse 1, and I will read down to verse 16 this morning. And the word should be up on the screen for you, um, if that's easier. It says, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head, and he sat at the table. And when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial." Assuredly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. And so, Lord, would you just honor the reading of your word this morning? Lord, would you go before us as we seek you, Lord, through your word? God, we know that you have something for us, Lord. Would you give us ears to hear this morning, Lord? Would you open our hearts to receive from you, Lord, as we open your word? Would you open our hearts? Would you minister to us, Lord? Would you have your way? And would you go before us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus has just finished his, again, his Olivet Discourse. He has just um, given his disciples this, this teaching on, you know, what we call eschatology, right? On, on end times events and what can be expected, you know, in those, in those last days. And as we enter into chapter 26 and, and look at these you know, just a few verses really this morning, but even just a cursory reading of the passage will tell us that there's several things that are going on here, right? Several things 
that are, are happening, um, three things to be exact. So, you know, if you are taking notes this morning, you guessed it, there's three things, three points that we're going to be looking at. Um, I'll go ahead and give those to you up front, and then we'll drop back and look at each one as we move through. So the first thing we want to consider is the prophecy of Jesus. In verses 1 through 5, we have the prophecy of Jesus, and then we're going to have the anointing of Jesus in verses 6 through 13, the anointing of Jesus, and then third and lastly, we have the betrayal of Jesus in verses 14 through 16, the betrayal of Jesus. Let's jump in. Let's take a look at this first point that we want to consider, this prophecy of Jesus. This prophecy of Jesus in verses 1 through 5 Um, There are four things we want to note, four things we want to consider about this prophecy that Jesus gives us. The first being the timing of it, the timing of the prophecy. In verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass that when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples. So it came to pass, right, at a certain point, right, that Jesus had finished all these sayings. So the timing of the prophecy is when he finished the sayings. What sayings, right? He finished what, right? The Olivet Discourse, right? Chapters 24 and 25, right? The, the, the teachings there on the Mount of Olives, right? Remember that Jesus is there with his disciples. He's there on the Mount of Olives and seeing the temple, right? They saw the temple and they marveled at the temple, and, and Jesus said that not one stone would be left unturned, right? And this, this prompted these disciples, right? His disciples, it prompted a question. In fact, three questions uh, to, to be exact, right? In, in verse 3 of chapter 24, they, they ask Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. You know, and this prompted Jesus to go into this Olivet Discourse, right? This, this teaching on, on end times events, which we have spent the last couple weeks looking at and considering. So from those questions, from that, that inquisition from his disciples, we have these incredible teachings, right, that, that Jesus gives to us on, on eschatology, on end times events, um, you know, and we've spent the last couple of weeks looking at these things and considering, considering these things. But you have to remember that in Jesus' mind, right, he, he's not looking to those things, right? That, that in just a few days, he's going to be faced with the cross, right? That he is going to be, as we're going to see this morning, he's going to be de- uh, betrayed by someone he called a friend, right? He's going to be taken uh, before priests, the high priest is going to be taken before Herod. He's going to be taken before Pilate. And ultimately, he's going to receive a death sentence. Right? We're going to see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? sweating those great drops of blood. Right? Crying out to his father, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. You know, but then he says those words, nevertheless, my will be done. That is what Jesus is considering, the timing of these things, right? We are just two days from the Passover, two days from 
his crucifixion. And so not only do we have the timing of these things, but we have the giving of the prophecy, right? That Jesus gives this prophecy about his death. In verse 2, Jesus says, You know that after two days is the Passover. And he tells them, The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Right? He tells them, in two days, right? Because they're all gearing up, right? They're all gearing up for the Passover, right? This feast that they celebrate every year. And so, right, the, the city is, is bustling with people, right? The city, really, it's, it's kind of swelling to overflowing. There are literally people everywhere as they prepare for this feast. And that's what's on everybody's mind. But on Jesus' mind, he's saying, no, the Passover for me, in this year particular, is significant, right, is important, because in two days, and he's telling his disciples this, in two days, when you celebrate this Passover, he's like, I'm going to be delivered up. I am going to be crucified. Jesus here gives them the prophecy of his death on a cross. But this isn't the first time that he's told them this. Right? This isn't the first time that they're hearing this. In fact, this is the fourth time that he's told them. Jesus mentions it back in Matthew uh, 16, verse 21. He says it again in Matthew 17, 22. He says it in Matthew 28, 18 through 19. And then fourthly, he says it again here in Matthew 26, verse 2 that he is going to be delivered up and he's going to be crucified. But notice, you know, if you were to go, go back and look at each one of those times that he has predicted or prophesied his crucifixion, unlike the other three times, this time he predicts his death by linking it to a specific event. It is this time when he prophesies of his death that he links it to the Passover feast. He tells him in two days, We're going to celebrate the Passover. In two days, the Passover will happen and that the Son of Man will be delivered up and crucified. He links it to the Passover feast. And I think this is significant because there are seven feasts and we've we've talked about this in the past, but in, in Judaism, there are seven feasts that they celebrate in a calendar year, right? And the Passover was one of those seven feasts. And three of those feasts were compulsory. Three of those feasts were mandatory for any Jewish male 20 years or older that was, that was able-bodied. If they were able to make it to Jerusalem, they were required by Jewish law to go and to celebrate that feast. The first of those was Passover, right? The second one was Pentecost, and the third was the Feast of Tabernacles. Those three feasts were required to be celebrated, And so because it was compulsory, because they were required by law to go to this feast, you can imagine the city just filling with people because they have to be there. The feast is in two days. Passover is in two days and people need to be there. You have the Feast of Passover, and then immediately following the Feast of Passover, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then you would have the Feast of First Fruits. Then you would have Pentecost. Then you'd have the Feast of Trumpets. You would then have the Day of Atonement. 
And then lastly, you'd have this Feast of Tabernacles. And so they're there. They're going into the city to celebrate Passover. And Passover is significant because it's the first feast that is celebrated. And the Feast of Passover has its roots all the way back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. If you remember, right, the the nation of Israel is there in captivity in Egypt, right? And they've been in captivity in Egypt for 400 years, right? And we know the story, right? We know the story that God calls Moses and says, Moses, you need to go, right? And Moses is like, man, well, I can't speak so good. And he's like, fine, I'll send Aaron with you. You need to go. Because I want to bring my people out of captivity, and those, those ten plagues, right, that God sends to Egypt, right, those ten plagues, that tenth plague, right, being the angel of death, right, and that's how we get the feast of Passover, that the, that the people of Israel, right, the nation of Israel were given specific instructions by God, right, to take a lamb and to sacrifice that lamb. It had to be a perfect lamb, right, without spot, without blemish, It had to be perfect. And they would sacrifice that lamb, but then they were instructed to take the blood of that lamb, right? To dip it in hyssop and to apply it to the doorpost and the lentils of their home, right? So you think about, as you enter a home, right? The the blood of this lamb would be be spread on the the sides of the door and across the top. And they were instructed that when the, the angel of death comes and when the angel of death sees the blood applied to the doorpost of your home, he will what? He will pass over you, right? And that's how they get the net. That's why it became known as the Feast of Passover because it was to commemorate the angel of death passing over their homes. I mean, do you see the picture? Do you see why this is so significant? Do you see why Jesus must be sacrificed on Passover, right? Because when his blood is applied to the doorposts of our hearts, right, death is passed over, right? And then we get to enter in to life with him. No, this is significant. This is deliberate. This is on purpose. See, Jesus needs to go to the cross and he needs to die for our sins on that specific day. You get the picture. Jesus is that lamb. Jesus is the lamb that is sacrificed for us John 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. John would say in in Revelation 5.12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Jesus is the fulfillment of Passover. So yes, it is significant that Jesus ties and links his death on a cross with this feast. You see, they would celebrate Passover to remember, to to, uh, commemorate their exodus out of Egypt when God delivered them from the bondage of Egypt and ushered them into the promised land. But Jesus here is saying, no, no. That feast was only a picture, a type, 
of what I am about to do in Jerusalem. Yes, you celebrate to, to remember your exodus out of Egypt. But this is going to stand as a type and a picture. And it was always meant to be a picture. And that's what I love about the Old Testament, right? Because we can read the Old Testament. And, and how, how does it go? Right? The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Right? And the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. Right? That, that both Testaments, right? The Old Testament points forward. It looks ahead to the cross. And everything in the Old Testament is a picture, is pointing to this event. And the New Testament points back to the cross. Everything in the New Testament is pointing back to this event, saying this was the culmination of history. This is when it all mattered and when it all was fulfilled. This moment. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. You see, this wasn't some afterthought, right? It's not like God created man, right? And then Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God went, whoops, we've got to fix this. This was always God's plan. Foreordained before the foundations of the world, God's plan was for Jesus to pay the penalty for us. You get the picture. Do you see why this feast, this Passover, was so significant and so important? Because it looked forward to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ on the cross. Right? Because sin has separated us from God. Right? That sin brought death. Right? That death entered the world because of our sin. And it is only by the blood of Jesus Christ, when it is applied to the doorposts of our hearts, when his Blood is applied to our hearts. It causes death to pass over us so that we may pass from death to life. First Corinthians 5, 7 says, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. He is our Passover. And so here, as he is giving this prophecy He is linking it to the Passover feast because that was what's on their minds, right? As they're there in the city, that's what they're thinking about. It's Passover. There are things we need to be doing. There are things that need to happen so that we can celebrate this feast. We've got to make sure we have our lamb. We've got to make sure it's perfect. It's without spot. It's without blemish, right? We've got to make sure we get it to the temple, right? So it can pass through the inspection process so it can be sacrificed so that we can celebrate, Right? And Jesus is standing there saying, no, I am your Passover lamb. It's me. I am the one that is perfect, spotless, and without blemish. And I am about to go to that cross to be sacrificed for you. Well, not only do we have the timing of this prophecy, not only do we have the prophecy given, but we also have the people that are involved in this prophecy 
The people that are involved, look at there in verse 3. Then the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. So we have four, four groups of people that are mentioned here that are a part of this prophecy. We have the chief priests, right? And these would have been the, the various religious leaders, right? They would have been very wealthy. They would have been very influential. They would have been very powerful um, and influential people there in, in Jerusalem. So we have the chief, these chief priests, but we also have the scribes. And the scribes were um, copyists, right? The, the scribes were the ones that took the law and they, they transcribed it. They copied it. And because of this, they became very astute when it, became, when it was in regards to the law, right? Because they spent all their time copying the law. So they knew it and they were very familiar with it. And so oftentimes, these scribes were called lawyers, right? Because they knew the law, they were familiar with the law, and they made sure people were upholding God's law. And then you also have these elders. You have the chief priests, you have the scribes, and you have these elders. And the elders would have been similar to the chief priests, right? They were wealthy, they were influential, but they were also more kind of like laity, right? They weren't exactly priests in the temple, but they were... um, uh, kind of, I guess, non-religious uh, influencers and, and people of, of authority. Um, but they, their, their opinions and their things still held, held weight uh, in the religious circle. Um, and then lastly, you have the high priest, whose names, therefore, is at the end of verse 3, Caiaphas. And the high priest was head over all of these, right? These, these three groups, the, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the chief... Um, Sorry, the the high priest was kind of head over all of them. In fact, all four of these groups put together assembled what was called the Sanhedrin, a group of 71 members that were the the Jewish ruling council. You know, in our vernacular, we might consider them the Supreme Court. They were the ones that made any kind of decision, and a decision that they made held weight and power over the people. And the person over the Sanhedrin, the person at the head of this group, was the high priest. And in this case, was this man, um, Caiaphas, right there in verse, in verse 3, this high priest named Caiaphas. Now, it's interesting, though, that Caiaphas um, was not part of the high priestly line. He didn't, he didn't come down through uh, Aaron's high priestly line. And so then it kind of asks the question, well, how did he get there? How did he become high priest if he wasn't part of the priestly line? In fact, the high priest of Aaron's line was a man named Annas. And Annas was the, was the high priest, and then uh, the Roman governors decided that they wanted someone that they had appointed, right? Someone that they could kind of control and have some sway and some influence over. So they installed Caiaphas as high priest. In, in, in fact, later on, Caiaphas would go on to marry the daughter of Annas to try and gain some, some popularity with the people because he was kind of outside that Jewish, uh, sorry, that, that Aaron line 
that was required to, to be high priest. You know, but when the, when the Roman authorities come and they give you power, you know, you're probably less likely to just give it back because you're not of a, an appropriate lineage. But he's the one, ultimately, that's, that's calling the shots and, and is, is making the decision, is this man uh, Caiaphas. And so the, the fourth thing we want to consider in terms of the prophecy about Jesus is, is not just the people involved, but the plan regarding this prophecy, the plan, right? Caiaphas and, and these, these men of influence have a plan, right? There in verses four and five that they plotted, they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. That's their plan. They're going to try and trick Jesus so they can take him and kill him. And notice in verse 5, But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They're like, hey, we got this plan, right? Well, we need to eliminate Jesus. We got to get this guy out of here. He's disrupting everything that we want and stand for. He's got to go. But they're like, yeah, not, not during the feast, though, right? I mean, you picture it again. The whole city has swelled with people, right? Emotions are high because this is a high and holy feast for them. And they're just going to go off and kill someone of influence in the area, right? That has multitudes that are following him and listening to his teachings, teachings that they don't like. So their plan is just to trick him and kill him. And, and, and the reason why I talk about the plan regarding this prophecy, because they have a plan. They're putting things in place to get their way. But as we've already mentioned, this has always been God's plan, right? This has always been leading to this point, to this moment, for this purpose. And what's interesting there is in verse 5, they're like, yeah, but not during the feast. But what God's going to say, right? Oh, no, yes, definitely during the feast, Right? And I think that's what's significant is that we make plans, right? And then God laughs, right? Because he has his own plan. Because he's sovereign. He's in control. So much so that even though they desperately don't want this to happen on Passover, guess what? It is most definitely going to happen on Passover because God's in control. He's sovereign. He's orchestrating these things. Remember, from the foundation of the world, it was always meant to go this way. Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, estimates that there were probably over two million people in the city of Jerusalem at this time. Just two million people there to celebrate Passover. So you can imagine these religious leaders, right? This, this Sanhedrin, right? This group of 71 men that are planning and orchestrating this whole thing going, man, there, there's an awful lot of people here and uh, we want to be careful. We don't want to cause an uproar, right? Because if two million people get rowdy, who's going to control it, right? What, what are we going to do? John 10, 17 and 18 says, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. Jesus says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. 
Jesus says, no one's taking my life. No one's going to trick me into the cross. No, 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 no. I lay it down. I give it. It's mine. Peter says in, in, in his first epistle, indeed, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. John would say in Revelation 13, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Acts 2.23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. You see, these leaders think that they're taking Jesus. They're tricking him. They're doing this thing. But him being delivered by the, by the predetermined purpose and the foreknowledge of God. This was always God's plan. It was always his purpose. Jesus is going to go to that cross. Not because a group of 71 men decided it needed to happen, but because God from the foundation of the earth said man needs saving. And this is the only way it happens. Right? Remember, we're going to see this in, in a few weeks. Jesus there in the garden. Going, Father, if there is another way. But there isn't. This is the only way. This is the only way we are redeemed. And Jesus says, I go willingly. I give it for you. No one takes it. I lay myself down. And then we have this interesting, what we call a parenthetical story. Right? The, the second thing that we want to consider this morning is this anointing of Jesus. Jesus is anointed. And in verse 6, it says, uh, we have the place, the place of the anointing in verse 6, that when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. So things kind of shift, right? Jesus is, is preparing his disciples for, for this prophecy, right? Preparing his disciples for his death on a cross. And then all of a sudden, Matthew jumps into this story about his anointing that took place in Bethany. We're going to, you know, by the other accounts, right? When we look at like John chapter 12, we learned that this took, this anointing happened four days ago. Right? When Jesus is giving this prophecy, we're two days from the Passover. But this, this anointing in Bethany took place six days before the Passover. And it happens in Bethany, and it happens in the house of Simon the leper. So Jesus is there in Bethany. It's the, Bethany is kind of at the, the south end of the, the Mount of Olives, and he's, he's in Simon's house, you know, who is Simon? Who is this Simon the leper? Uh, short answer, we don't know. <laughs> um, we know his name is Simon. We know he was a leper. And I say was because the other accounts tell us that Mary is there, Martha is there, Lazarus is there, Jesus and his disciples are there. If this man was still a leper, they wouldn't have been in his house. Right, So the assumption there is that he's been healed, probably, perhaps by Jesus himself. Maybe that's why Jesus is in his house. 
but we don't actually know. All we know is that his name is Simon, he has a house, he's a leper, or at least called, right? He, he's probably been healed, and he's just probably retained that name because that's how people know him. He's Simon the leper. But they're there in his house. Right, the first two verses of John's gospel in chapter, tw- t- chapter 12 tell us that then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, right? The Lazarus that Jesus had raised from the dead. Um, and they, they made a, him a supper and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So again, there's, there's people there, Mary we're going to learn, is the one who is anointing Jesus, and they're there in the house. So we have Mary, we have Martha, we have Lazarus, we have Simon, we have Jesus, we have the disciples that are there. And it's interesting, right? It's interesting because this happened four days ago, right? John's Gospel tells us it was six days before the Passover. But just a moment ago, we were two days before the Passover. Why the contradiction? You know, and this is why we call it a parenthetical. You see, Matthew isn't giving us a chronological series of events. He's not saying that, oh, he gave this prophecy, then he went to Bethany, and then he went to the... No. No, I think Matthew inserts this story here because Matthew wants to paint for us a picture. He wants to paint for us a picture, a, a contrast between two people. He wants to paint a contrast between Mary and between Judas. And so he puts them right next to each other. Because he he wants us to consider the two of them together. Because these are two people that knew Jesus, spent time with Jesus, considered Jesus a friend. Claimed to worship and believe him. So we need to consider this act, the act of anointing Jesus. In verse 7, it says, A woman came to him, having an alabaster flask of costly, or excuse me, very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head, and he sat at the table. So picture this, right? People are getting their things ready. They're heading to Jerusalem, right? They're getting ready to celebrate Passover, right? Preparations need to be made. Things need to happen. Much like even like for us today, right? Like we're looking at the holiday season, right? We got to start getting things ready. We got to start considering where we're going for Christmas, who, who's going to be in our homes, right? What, what our meal's going to be, right? There's preparations. There's things that need to happen. This is a big deal for Israel. Things need to happen. And so they're there. And this woman comes in. Mary, and she's got this alabaster flask filled with, uh, John's gospel tells, uh, no, I'm sorry, I think it's Mark's gospel that tells us that it's the, the oil spikenard, right? And she comes in amongst the other people that are there in the room, and she breaks this flask, and she begins pouring this oil on to Jesus. And I got to tell you that I believe this on the part of Mary was an act of worship, that she comes into the room and says, Jesus, I worship you. I know who you are. I know what you mean to me. 
Let me show you how much you mean. Mary, the sister of Martha, right? Remember, remember the story, right? They're there. Jesus is in the house. And Mary's just enamored with Jesus, right? And Martha's over there like, hey, I'm trying to prepare a meal here. My sister's doing nothing. Jesus, say something to her, right? And Jesus says, no, she's chosen the better thing, right? Because she's worshiping her Lord. She's worshiping her Savior, and she's got this alabaster flask, right, of, of oil, right? And in, and in Mark's account, right, in Mark chapter 14, verse 5, we're told that it was worth 300 denarii. 300 denarii was one year's wages for a Roman soldier, right? That was the annual income for a Roman soldier, 300 denarii. I don't know what the, the average annual income is, but just for easy numbers, we're just going to say 50 grand. The value that she is pouring over Jesus, we would estimate it to be worth $50,000. Can you imagine? Right? This was something that, that a lot of women would carry around their neck. They'd have this flask, a very costly and very fragrant oil. It would often be used as a dowry. In fact, this flask would have been so attached to the woman that under Jewish law, they were allowed to carry it on the Sabbath because it was so much a part of them. They didn't part with it. They didn't take it off. Right? Because of its value, because of what it was worth, it was always right with them. And this woman Mary comes in and she breaks it open and she just pours it on Jesus and anoints him. Do you see the worship? Do you see what's taking place? Here's the thing. This act of worship, it cost her something. Right? And we could argue it cost her almost everything. She probably didn't have anything else that was more valuable than this oil. And she pours it on Jesus. We might even go as far as to say it cost her a fortune. I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, if, if I had 50 grand in the bank, I'm not sure I could just go, here we go right? Just pour it out. But in essence, that's what we should be doing, right? Everything we have, everything should be for Jesus. Lord, let me pour it out for you. You do with it as you see fit. It belongs to you already. Here you go. Listen, worship, true Worship, true worship isn't just coming here on Sunday and, and singing a few songs, right? Repeating a few words that are on the screen. That's, that's a form of worship, but that's not true worship. True worship is the outpouring of our life. True worship costs something. True worship should cost us something. Do you remember... In um, 2 Samuel chapter 24, 
David says, no, but I will surely buy it from you at a price, right? David was buying a field, and, and, and David says this, I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. So David bought the, the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, right? Because David was there, and they're saying, here, just take it. Right? And David says, no, I'm not going to give something to the Lord that didn't cost me anything. You see, David understood that worship should cost something. It should cost something. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, that on, on Friday nights we're, we're studying the, the minor prophets. We're in the book of Malachi. And one of the things that's happening, one of the reasons why Malachi is writing his prophecy is because the people have come back into the land, Right? They've built the temple and worship has started again. But even in that short period of time, after their exile in Babylon, right, they've allowed back in, they've built the temple again there under Zerubbabel and their worship has waned already, right? And Malachi is there informing them, listen, what's happened? And he says there in Malachi 1, verses 6 through 8, he says, a son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? This is the Lord speaking, right? Where is my honor, he says. And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Right? The Lord is asking his people, why don't you honor me? Where is your reverence for me? If I'm your father, if I'm your master, where is it? Where's your reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you, to the priests, listen to this, to the priests who despise my name. The priests, the people that are supposed to stand in the gap between God and the people, right? The nation of Israel comes to the temple. They offer their sacrifice. It's given to the priest, right? And the priests perform the offering or the sacrifice. And God is there going, where's my reverence? Why do you despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? So the priests are there going, how have we despised you? How have we despised your name? And the Lord responds in verse 7 by saying, you offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? And then he says, offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, what's happening is the people are basically taking roadkill, right? Found it on the side of the road. Here, God, you can have this. That's for you. Right, The lame, the blind, the sick sacrifices. God, you can have that because I don't want it. And what's even more upsetting is the priests were okay with this. They were okay with taking blind, lame, defiled sacrifices and saying, okay, God, here you go. And God's saying to them, the, the table is contemptible. The offering is is contemptible. And, and I say this, and I, and I bring this up 
Because when we worship the Lord, it should cost something. There should be value there. In other words, we shouldn't be saying, Lord, here's my scraps. Take it. You can have that part. But the rest of it's for me. I want to keep that for myself. See, I have a plan and a purpose for, for, for these things. So I'm going to keep this. But you, you can have the stuff I don't care about. But here's this woman that she comes in and says, God, you can have all of it. Everything I am, anything that's important to me, anything that has value, God, it's yours. Let me anoint you with it. When we offer something to the Lord, it should cost something. Right? When we give to the Lord, it should be, it should be sacrificially, right? There should be a level of sacrifice on our part to give it to him. You know, and, and I fear that too often our, our attitude is, you know, if I get some free time this week, God, I'll, I'll give that to you. You know, if my schedule frees up, if I can pencil you in somewhere, I'll, I'll, I'll try and find you some time, or I'll, I'll go and serve in this area or in that capacity, you know, but, you know, when I get a little extra money, You know, if I can get some overtime in this week, Lord, you can have that. I'll donate that. God, if I have anything left over, that's that's yours. I'll, I'll give that to you. And I'm sorry, but that's not true worship. Because that's not true sacrifice. Doing that is just giving God out of our abundance. Right? We're saying, this I'm keeping for me. If I have anything extra, God, you can have that. You can have the abundance. Remember when Jesus was sitting there opposite of the treasury, right, in Mark chapter 12, right? He's sitting there and he's seeing how the people bring money into the treasury, right? He's paying attention, right? And it says there that, that many who were rich, that they put in much, right? And, and the idea was, right, they had these shofars, right? And what they would do is they would put all their money, they'd make sure it was in coin form, right? No paper money, put it in coins, Right? And they would have it kind of up in their robes and they would walk over to the shofar and just start shuffling in. Right? Because they wanted everyone to know how much they were putting in there. Right? So it would kind of cling clang all the way down in. Look how much I'm giving. Right? Because it was a show, it was this act. Look how much. And Jesus is watching this, he's paying attention to all this. Right? It says, Then one poor widow, she came in and she threw in two mites. Right? Basically nothing. Pennies. And he called his disciples. As he's watching all this over, he calls his disciples over to himself and he says to them, Surely I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. Right? All these people shoveling money in there. Look how much. And Jesus says, No, no, no. She gave more. She gave more. Why? Because she gave out of her sustenance, right? Everybody else was giving out of the abundance. They were giving out of what they had left over. But this woman gave her two mites. It was all she had. And said, God, you can have it. And Jesus says, she gave more. That was real, true worship. Why? Because she gave it all to God and said, I'll trust you. I'll rely on you for the rest. See, everybody else was relying on themselves. 
right? They kept, they kept back the portion that they knew they needed and just gave out of the excess. You see, the, the widow, right, it cost her something. It cost her something. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Right? That there's going to come a day when we are going to stand before Jesus at that Bema seat, right? And we're going to have to give an account for the things that we did. And not the thing that we did per se, but the why we did it. Or the why we didn't do it. See, because at the end of the day, he doesn't need, right? God doesn't need my money. It's already his, right? God doesn't need my time. It's already his. But what he does need, what he does want is my heart. Because unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily have to be his, does it? I don't have to give my heart to him. But he wants us to. And this woman, Mary, comes in, right? And her, this act that she's doing was an act of worship because it wasn't about the oil. It was the heart behind it. It was the heart, it was why she was pouring out that oil upon Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.13, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built endures, right, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as through fire. Right? The things that we do, it will be tested. And if it's for ourselves, if it's for our own purposes, it's going to amount to nothing. Right? Paul says it'll be burned. It'll be burned up. But if it withstands the fire, right? if the heart and the motive behind what we do was for the Lord and the heart and the purpose was pure, the worship was real, it'll survive, right? As silver, as gold. And here's the thing that really concerns me, right? Is the response of the disciples, right? Because this woman comes in and she does this amazing act of worship, And look how the disciples respond there in verses 8 and 9. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. They see this act of worship take place and they're indignant. It says, why this waste? Why the waste, they say. For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Hear them? How noble. We could have given that money to the poor. They were indignant, angry even. They got all upset and said, what a waste. In John's gospel, John chapter 12, it tells us that it was Judas Iscariot. He was the one that kind of stepped in and got this bowl rolling. He was the one that was like, hey, uh, what a waste, man. And all the other disciples kind of jumped on board and went, yeah, 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 what a waste. I mean, if she really wanted to get rid of that oil, we could have sold it and done something better with it, right? Here's the thing, though. 
whatever we do for the Lord, right, whatever it is, regardless of how big it is, regardless of how small it is, whatever we do with a pure heart, right, whatever we do with right motive, right, if it's true worship, it's not a waste. Listen, if you want to worship the Lord, if you want to serve him, it is not a waste of your time. It is not a waste of your resources. It's not a waste of your money. Now, from the world's perspective, we can take those things and we can waste them. But if you're giving to serve the Lord, to minister to him, if if your heart is, God, this is yours, it is not a waste Right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It doesn't, it's a drop in the bucket to him. But what he does want is our hearts. See, what, what Mary just did was worship. And the beautiful thing is Jesus accepts that worship. Right? He, he rebukes his disciples. He's like, no, don't. No, no, no. No, no. No. Jesus becomes aware of this. Right? He says to them, why do you trouble this woman? Right? He rebukes them for this. She has done a good work for me, he says. She's done a good work. You'll always have the poor, right? He says, the the poor's not going away. They'll always be there, right? I'm going to the cross. I'm not always going to be here. What she's done is a good thing. And notice this, right? For in pouring this oil on my body, she did it for my burial, right? Again, now he's bridging that gap. He's going back saying, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be dead and buried in two days. Well, I guess in this context, six days, sorry, right? Because we're still in Bethany. She poured this oil out and Jesus is saying, this, is, this was my, my burial ointment, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Man, what an example. What an example of what true worship is, right? Worship, when done correctly, right? Worship, when it, when it costs us something, when worship is sacrificial, when it's pure, when it's motivated with love, It stands as a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? That it goes that back. And and for Mary, this is a a memorial. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Listen, when you give to the Lord, when you worship him, whatever it is, whether it's of your time, whether it's of your resources, whether it's of your money, whatever it is, give it cheerfully. Give it from your heart. And listen, if you can't do that, if you, if you can't do that, if, if, you, if you're doing it because you feel obligated, if you're doing it because you feel pressured to, if you do it and it becomes a grudging thing that, oh, I've got to go do this thing or what, don't. Listen, he doesn't want it. Because it's not that in particular that he needs. It's our heart that he's looking for. And if he can't have our heart, why bother do the others? And this is the part that scares me. Because as, as we move into these last couple of verses, bear with me for just a couple more minutes. 
the part that scares me, right, is the betrayal, right? The contrast that he's pointing, right? In verses 14 through 19, we have Judas betraying his Lord. The person who betrays, right, Judas, when one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest. So Judas Iscariot betrays Jesus. And I think this becomes significant. I think this is why Matthew inserted the anointing of Bethany here in this passage. Because we have this act of worship from Mary. And we have the person of Judas that goes off to betray him. And I think this shows us a very powerful contrast between true worship and insincere worship. The contrast between one who worships Jesus and one who betrays Jesus. You see, the contrast between someone who made a sacrifice in worship to Jesus and someone who sacrificed Jesus for some earthly things, for 30 pieces of silver. You know, and the thing is, is we probably all know a Mary. Right? When we think of what Mary did, we can probably think of someone that has, they've poured out their life in service of Jesus. But the other thing is we also probably know someone like Judas. Right? Someone that blends in. Someone that can say all the right things, can do all the right things, but somehow their heart just isn't quite there. And, and, and this is the part, again, I, keep, I know I keep saying it, but this is the part that scares me, right? Because none of the other disciples would have ever suspected Judas Iscariot, right? When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they all looked at each other and went, well, which one of us? Surely none of Really? No one suspected you. When, when we picture Judas Iscariot, right, right, we kind of picture this dark, shadowy figure, right, with a grimace on his face, kind of shady, right, kind of in the shadows, kind of almost behind the other disciples, maybe off to the side a little bit, like he's not really one of them. But that wasn't the case. He blended in and nobody knew it was going to be him. We read the story and we, oh, that's Judas Right? You, you watch something like the Chosen series, right? And you look, where's Judas, right? Because he's going to be obvious. It's going to be evident which one he is. But that's not the case. And that's the scary thing. Is that if our hearts aren't pure, and if we're not motivated by love for our Savior, we can just kind of blend in. And no one will be the wiser. If I can encourage you this morning, I know this is going to come off kind of strong, but (laughs) we need to stop playing church, okay? We need to stop just playing church. Because listen, you can fool me, I can fool myself, we can fool each other, but we're not fooling God. And if we're not really in this, Right? Like, it's, it's got to be more than just coming to church on Sunday and then living our lives how we want during the week. And believe me, I'm preaching to myself. It's got to be more, and it's got to go deeper. And it's got to be more sincere. 
Listen, it's going to cost something. It's going to be sacrificial. Our worship needs to be something that fills the room. Picture it, right? Mary is there. She breaks open this flask and she begins to pour it on Jesus. And you can imagine that whole room filled with that fragrance. It was unmistakable. There was nobody in that room that was going, what? Really? I was there. I didn't see that. Everybody knew what Mary just did. And that's what our worship should be. We should know what we're doing, why we're doing it. Right? Forget what the world thinks. Forget what the world says. It's between you and your Savior. It's between you and your relationship with him. It's got to be worship that's contagious. You ever been with someone? Right? It's contagious, right? You're like, man, I want to be like that person. Because it's, it's so clear. It's so evident that they love the Lord. Right? They enter the room and that whole room just lights up. Man, I want to be like that person. That sweet-smelling aroma, right? That when you see real worship, right, it inspires you. It's infectious. It's contagious. There's a passion and a drive that's there. Because it costs something, right? That's what they say, like, right, in business. Anything worth doing is worth doing well, right? Like in business, if you're going to go off and do something, and if it's going to matter in the, the, the grand scheme of things, you've got to be all in, right? That's what they tell you. If you're going to do something, you've got to do it. You've got to be all in. And listen, if we're going to worship Jesus, guys, we've got to be all in, right? We've got to say, Jesus, this is yours. Let me sacrifice myself. You sacrifice yourself for me. Why can't I sacrifice for you? What is it that I can't let go of? What is it in my life that I got to turn back and say, Jesus, take it. I can't hold on to this any longer. You see, Judas was so caught up in the world. Listen listen to what Judas says. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Judas is looking to the world saying, what would you give me? If I give Jesus to you, what would you give me in return? And remember, this guy blended in. Nobody knew it was going to be him. What would you give me for Jesus? And they said, 30 pieces of silver. The price of a common slave. Jesus was sold for the price of a common slave. You see, Judas asks the question, how much can I get for Jesus? What can I get if I give you my Savior, my Lord? This person that for three years, right, he has been following, sitting under his teachings. What would you give me? I mean, this was a man that was trusted John's gospel tells us that he held the money box. He was the treasurer for the group. They trusted him with the funds. And John tells us that he was a thief, right? He wanted that fragrant oil because he wanted it in the money box so he could pillage it. He could take it for himself. And to him, Jesus was worth 30 pieces of silver. Judas says, how much can I get for Jesus? Well, Mary, Mary asks the question, how much can I give to Jesus? How much can I give him? 
Right? Mary answers the question and says, I'll give it all. It all belongs to you. I'll close with this. Spurgeon said, Is anything wasted which is all for Jesus? It might rather seem as if all would be wasted if it's not given to Jesus. Right? Because we can keep it all for ourselves if we really want to, but at the end of the day, what does that matter? Because we're all going to stand before him one day, and we're all going to have to give an account. And so, Lord, we thank you this morning, God, for your word. And God, we know that it might be a challenging passage, Lord, to... to Lord, I, I know if, if I look at myself, and if I take inventory from myself, Lord, this morning, I'm not sure I measure up to a Mary. I'm not sure... I could make the sacrifice that she made, God, but I want to. I want to get to that point where I could say, God, it's all yours, every bit of it. Nothing held back. God, would you keep us from being a Judas, someone that can blend in, can pass off as any one of the twelve, Yet there's no heart, there's no passion, there's no true drive, there's no real worship. God, keep that from us. God, bring us to a place where we're, we're, we're all in for you. God, make us like a Mary this morning. God, show us where we can serve, where we can give back to you, Lord. God, have your way in our lives, Lord. Lord, in a time and in a world, Lord, that everyone seems to be asking the question, what can I get from this scenario? Where do I benefit? What can I receive, Lord? And keep us from that mindset, Lord. Keep us, Lord, from going to that place, Lord, and bring us to a place where we're trying to answer the question, how much can I give you? It all belongs to you. So God, have your way in our lives. Lord, do a work, Lord, in our lives. Lord, in in, in the lives of our families, Lord, in our community here, Lord. Show us how we can serve this area, Lord, for your purposes and for your kingdom, God. God, we love you so much. Would you go before us the rest of today, Lord, be high and lifted up in our lives. And God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.